0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be here gathered among your people, seated at your feet, praising you in song, lifting up petitions in prayer and learning from you, Father, in deep and marvelous things from your word, remembering your sacrifice on the cross and your promise to come again. These are the things, Father, that give us hope, that sustain us in times of trial and difficulty. And we, Lord, Lord, we just need to know you more. We need you to be ever-present in our lives. We need the correction and the guidance, the encouragement and the instruction. We come here tonight, Father, because we want these things, not just tonight, but in every day. So teach us tonight, Father. Prepare us for the week ahead in what we learn. In Jesus' name. I pray. The ancient Chinese military strategist, a guy named Sun Tzu, you may have heard his name, he authored the book The Art of War, and it's famous uh, in many ways. It's a very profound book. It's been around for centuries. But one of the things Sun Tzu said that most people remember most often is, know your enemy. Know your enemy. Victory on the battlefield, he said, begins with an understanding of the strengths and the tactics of your adversary and military experts have studied and and have fought according to these principles in sun tzu's book for thousands of years but his advice doesn't just apply for wars that are fought on physical battlefields between soldiers and tanks it also applies to spiritual battles to warfare against the enemy that every christian faces in their walk with christ we all experience warfare spiritual warfare in one form or another Some of us experience a greater degree of attack. Some of us are going to suffer greater losses. Some of us resist with greater strength. But regardless of those differences, we all struggle against that enemy. And I think for that reason, we can all benefit a little from learning more about the enemy we face, his strength, his tactics, his goals. And by that knowledge, you're going to be a lot better prepared to respond to the attacks when they come your way. Of course, we all know that the enemy I'm talking about is Satan. He's the chief adversary of God, along with his legion of demons who do his bidding. Last week I taught, in the beginnings of this chapter, an introduction, I guess you would say, a a backstory on Satan, where he came from. And we learned a little bit about how he was created, we learned about the duties he was asked to perform by God in the heavenly realm, we looked at how he fell in sin, as Scripture teaches us that, and I said, as a result, Satan is now amongst us, along with his demons, prowling, always ready to oppose God and his people. By the way, if you talk about these things and the way we're talking about them from the Bible, outside a building like this, you know what happens, right? The world marks you as a nutcase. You've gone off the deep end. Oh, you're talking about demons. You're talking about Satan, you know. They make fun of you. You're like a Saturday Night Live skit, as far as they're concerned. And doesn't he love that? I mean, that's perfectly suited to his aim. Don't take him seriously. We take him seriously. So we want to learn a little bit about him. Last week I also explained the reasons Jesus had to face this adversary in his temptations. That is, why does chapter 4 even exist for us? Fundamentally, Jesus came to earth as a man to solve the problem of sin. He came to be our new Adam, I said, to restart the human race. All of us are born with a sin nature which we inherited from Adam. And Adam's sin, which created the problem in the first place, was the direct result of a temptation offered by the great tempter, by Satan. So now, Jesus has come, as a man, to start things over, if you will. To hit the giant reset button on humanity, so to speak. And to do that, he has to first live life like Adam should have lived, but didn't. The life none of us can live, because we all inherited the same sin nature as Adam, so we're all stuck in the same problem Adam created. Christ has to beat that problem for us. He has to live like Adam should have, a perfect life, And then he has to die a death he doesn't deserve to pay the price for all our sin. That's what Jesus comes to do fundamentally. And then when we place our faith in that payment on the cross, well, then we are born again spiritually into his line. Spiritually speaking, we no longer trace our genealogy through Adam. We trace it through Jesus. We're like him now, spiritually speaking. That's what Jesus did. A new Adam into which you and I become grafted in, so to speak, spiritually. We become part of his lineage. So Jesus, as our new Adam, came to correct the chief mistake that Adam made, the one that plunged us all into sin. He has to prove he's different than Adam. He has to prove he has a better nature. He has to face the same situation Adam faced, yet he has to triumph where Adam failed. And to make that demonstration clearer to us that he is truly qualified to be our new Adam. The father crafted the temptation that Jesus faces to be far beyond anything Adam was asked to face in his life. Jesus faces three temptations, not just one. He will face them in a greatly weakened physical state, not in the idyllic state that Adam had. And he will face it with a body desperately seeking for relief. He will be alone. He will be unable to rely on his supernatural power. He will be fully vulnerable to the temptations that we all know, according to the book of Hebrews. As one commentator wrote, Just as metal has to be tested far beyond any stress or strain that it will ever be called upon to bear before it can be used for any useful purpose, so Jesus had to be tested beyond limits before God could use him for his purposes. So now as we turn to chapter 4 tonight, and we read the first of Jesus' temptations, what we want to learn, principally, are three things in the course of this study. First, we need to understand the enemy's tactics, his goals. We need to be like Sun Tzu. We need to know our enemy. Secondly, we have to understand the specific nature of each temptation that he put before Jesus, because he uses the same tactics for us. And then finally, we want to study Jesus' response, of course, so that we might learn how we can resist also. Those are the three things we want to do with each of the three temptations. So Satan's first temptation is linked in to the opening verses of the chapter. So even though we looked at the first couple of verses last week, I'm going to back up, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right, so there's the first temptation. Now, this is coming after a 40-day fast, and as we heard, Jesus gets ravenously hungry, which, as I said last week, this is the normal pattern for anyone who has pursued this kind of extended fasting period. And for anyone who wasn't here last week, yes, this is a literal 40 days of no food, and it is not... Inhumane. People do it even now. It's possible. But at that point, your body has consumed all its available fat stores, and it's desperate for a new source of energy. And so at that point, your hunger response comes back to life after being dormant for quite some time. And it's driving you crazy. Uh, Your brain is slowed, and it's easily confused because you don't have enough fuel. It's been compared to feeling like you're drugged. It's like you've taken too much cold medicine. You can't think straight. But beyond that, you have this this intense desire to eat that's, that's overwhelming. And it's in this severely debilitated state that Jesus now has to face one of the most powerful... No, I take that back. The most powerful created being in the universe. Remember last week we also said Satan is the wisest, most beautiful thing God ever created, according to Scripture. And he's also a member of the highest class of angelic beings, called cherubim. What you're probably saying to yourself is... Yeah, sure, he's got those advantages, but after all, Jesus is God, so it's not really a fair fight. Well, but then you'll remember Hebrews told us that when Jesus took the form of man, remember what he says? The writer says Jesus became for a little while lower than the angels. And Paul said that he took the form of man in such a way that he emptied himself of what he had with God, of equality with God. So if Satan is the most powerful angelic being, and Jesus is now for a little while lower than the angelic realm, then you have to conclude Satan has more power than Jesus does at this time. More guile, more strength, at least now. So this is truly a David versus Goliath moment in Scripture. The the problem is Jesus is playing the role of David, not Goliath. Now that seems backward, I know, but it's important to understand this moment from that perspective because what it tells us is that Jesus' only defense in this situation is to draw upon the very same resources every believer has in this struggle. Jesus has faith in the Word of God and in its power, and he has a personal determination to obey it. And as you'll see as we look at how he responds, that's all he depends on in this fight. He is not Superman in Clark Kent's clothes. He is a human being. His identity is God, but his form is man. So in verse 3, the enemy begins. As we look at the specific nature of the temptation, let's make sure you know your enemy here. Specifically, what is his goal and what he's doing? Satan's goal, specifically, is to lead Jesus to disobey the Father. Back in chapter 3 of this gospel, we heard the Father declaring publicly that Jesus was his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. Remember that? So now you have Satan meeting Jesus in the wilderness, hoping to corrupt that testimony. He wants to make God eat his own words, so to speak. It's the same thing as Satan tried to do with Job. If you know the story of Job, when the father gave Satan access to Job for a period of time, what Satan assumed was that if you give me enough motivation, give me enough tools, I can make Job, or Jesus in this case, eventually disobey the word of God. And that was the test that God let Satan have with Job. In the case of Job, Satan used trial to motivate him to disobey. In the case of Jesus, Satan uses temptation. And ultimately, this is always Satan's goal when he attacks God's people. When you're getting attacked spiritually, and by the way, when I say Satan attacks you, I don't mean he's everywhere. He's got a legion of demons who do his bidding. I'm just I'm just wrapping all of that up under him. So when he's at work attacking God's people, he puts pressure on you in one way or another in the hope that you will then rebel against the Father in the same way that he did. He wants you to follow his path of rebellion rather than continuing on a path of righteousness. He's essentially fighting God through you, through me, when he does that. Because the fight is all about who gets the glory. That's what it's all about. Because the one you obey is the one you glorify. So when you obey God, you give Him glory. Later in this book, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But... By your good works, you can glorify the Father in heaven. You're giving testimony that he is the one who is worthy to receive your honor and obedience. But the same thing works in reverse. When you disobey God by giving into Satan's schemes, his temptations or his trials, then what you do is give him the glory at God's expense. You're testifying by your works in that case that you agree with Satan's lies rather than with the truth of God's word. It's inevitable. Now I assume most of us didn't think that way about our mistakes as being a way of glorifying Satan. That's not what's in our mind at the time. I get it. But there is no in between. As the Lord tells Israel in Ezekiel 20:39, he says, "As for you, O house of Israel, go serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me, and my holy name will you will profane no longer with your idols." So they were profaning the name of God when they chased after what was false. Now, Satan knows that you and I have the Spirit of God in us, and he knows that because the Spirit of God lives in us, it motivates us to please God, to do what's right. So here's the problem he has. If he's going to pull us off track from this spiritual desire that we have to serve God, he's got to get a hook into us. He needs some distraction or some motivation that he can use to move you away from obedience and into disobedience and to kind of go stray with him. And that leads us into his tactics. If his goal is to get you to disobey when your heart wants to obey, what tactics let him make you change? Well, he has two primary tactics that would cause you to disobey God. Both are evident in his temptations. First, he discredits the word of God. Satan speaks against God's word. Notice how he begins his temptation with Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, Does that remind you of anything? Doesn't that sound similar to the way he deceived woman in the garden? Remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So it's a kind of indicting of God by throwing a question out. As he did in the garden, here Satan calls into question the trustworthiness of what God's word says. In this case, he ponders, Are you truly the son of God? Is that true? You know, he said you were, but can we believe that? He may have been thinking of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, 7, it says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it goes on to declare messianically that Jesus is the Son of God. So the Word of God says the Messiah, when he comes, will be the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And the Father had just said, This guy, Jesus, he's that Son of God. And now Satan is saying, Really? You're the Son of God? If you're the Son of God, we need to have a test. And so he's implying that the Lord is lying and you can't trust Him. Now, if Satan's victim in this kind of a scheme doesn't have a firm grasp on God's Word, well, then that person's going to be pretty easily deceived by Satan's deception. I mean, after all, he's the wisest creature God's ever made, according to Scripture. And as soon as that person has disconnected from their reliance on the Word of God, then their fall is virtually inevitable at that point. Because they're untethered. They're unchained from the rock. They're just floating out there now for God's enemy to take advantage of them. He's well on his way to gaining their allegiance. Which then leads us to the second major tactic. After he cuts you free from the word of God, he tempts you into disobedience. So he uses a temptation of some kind to motivate you to act in disobedience. So he starts by putting that seed of doubt in your mind concerning God's love or maybe his forgiveness or his fairness or there's something wrong with God or his word. And all that remains at that point is to give you a reason to take up sinning. So if Satan's first step could be seen as untethering you from the anchor of God's word, then the second step is him just giving you a little push in the direction of sin. That's his tactic. Unchain you from something that holds you to the truth so that he can just push you with a temptation in the way that your flesh wants to go. His temptations can be classified into three categories according to John in 1 John 2.16. I read this last week, but First John 2.16 gives us the classification of temptations. He says, John says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. John says everything that is of the fallen world can be grouped into these three categories. The first one he says is lusts of the flesh. And the lusts of the flesh are pretty obvious, right? That's any desire of our physical body for gratification. So we're talking principally here about things like desire for food, desire for drink, desire for sexual pleasure, desire for chemical addictions, anything that stimulates your body. That's what you want. That's a lust of the flesh. Now, we all know our body has basic needs. You've got to give it what it needs at some level in order for it to be healthy. That's fine. But when the desires of your physical body overwhelm or interfere with your spiritual objectives in life, well, then your body has become your own enemy. And at that point, the Bible calls us to discipline it and restrain its desires, putting them in subjection to the Spirit's counsel. That's the first category. The second, John says, is being tempted by the lust of the eyes. Now, even though the lust word is there again, and even though the eyes are physically a part of your body, don't let that fool you. This is an entirely different category. The lust of the eyes does not refer to satisfying some physical need in your eyeballs. It's it's not like your eyes need to be fed. It's, It's not that idea at all. It's a euphemism. And what it's actually describing is a desire for novelty, for excitement, for intrigue, for spectacle, for titillation, for those sorts of things. In today's language, you might call it chasing after the shiny object. It's a distraction of the heart triggered by something that catches your eye. People who are shopaholics, people who hoard things, various obsessions, fixations, hobbies that consume all our available time or money. The tendency to let the things of this world distract us and consume us Probably all of us have felt this in some fashion, in some way. Here again, we all have stuff. We all have interests. We probably all have some hobbies. Those things are not evil in themselves. The question again is, do they interfere with your spiritual walk? And when they do, then it means they become a tool of the enemy to bring you into disobedience. And then finally, the last category, John says, you can be tempted by the boastful pride of life. This category includes anything that inflames your ego or your vanity or it magnifies your sense of self-worth beyond what is reasonable, what is due. And it comes in two ways. You can see the pride of your life inflamed when you get accolades, or you can feel the pride provoked when someone diminishes you. And in those moments, your sin nature just comes to life. If you, if you get the accolades, you soak it up like a drug and you chase after it. Or if you're getting attacked you rush in to defend your ego in the face of that attack and you suddenly become defensive now we all know self esteem is is credited with being a good thing we all hear teachers telling us our kids need more self esteem i think that's complete nonsense the last thing any of us need is more self esteem we got more self esteem than we know what to do with what we need is a lot more christ esteem when our pride leads us to defend our desires and our interests at the expense of christ at our witness of Christ, then we're saying our reputation matters more than Christ's reputation. Our needs and our privileges matter more than serving Him. And when you do that, you're very vulnerable to the enemy. Now, all three of those categories of temptation target your physical body in some fashion. That is, whether your body, your mind, your emotions. And so you could label these three areas of temptation in that way. They're temptations of the body, of the mind, and we could say of the soul, meaning the the emotions center of your body. And Satan entices you by going after all three and whichever one he feels like he needs to get you with. He'll distract your mind with worthless obsessions, your body with lusts, and your soul with delusions of grandeur. He'll use them effectively. Remember, his goal here is not to just get you trapped into those feelings or those lusts. His goal is to get you to disobey because you're too busy in those things. As James says in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. You notice that? Carried away by lust is leading you to disobedience. And then he says, And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So in Jesus' case, the first temptation takes the form of a test. That is, he proposes to Jesus a way that he could prove, that Jesus could prove that the word of God is true concerning his identity. He says to Jesus, I just want you to reproduce one of the miracles that God performed for Israel when they were in the desert, in the wilderness during the Exodus. Something that you can find summarized in Psalm 78. Let me just read a short passage from Psalm 78. The psalmist writes in verse 17, speaking of Israel in the desert, Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking Food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock so that waters gush out, and streams were overflowing. Can He give us bread also? Will He provide meat for His people? And therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger was mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God, and they did not trust in His salvation. Yet He commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat, and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. So in that psalm, we hear the recounting of what we've probably heard before in the story of, of Exodus and on through the, the wilderness wanderings. That is, the Lord providing a miraculous food for people in, who lived in the desert, for the Israelites. They're in the desert. They've got no source of food. So what does he do? He produces bread miraculously. And what Satan has just tempted Jesus to do is repeat that miracle. He simply said... You can show me that the Word of God is accurate, that you're the Son of God. If you would just do the same miracle God did once before, that will be proof that you're the Son of God. Now, it's no coincidence that he happened to pick this particular miracle to tempt Jesus with, is it? I mean, bread. Right? He's hungry. He's attacking Jesus at his weakest point. He hadn't eaten for 40 days, so naturally he has a desire to eat food, and it would have been a particularly tempting thing for Jesus to do. I mean, you and I can honestly, we can't appreciate how tempted Jesus would have felt at this point to succumb to this request and to make food for himself. You can't imagine it. I mean, just think how hard it is for you to stop yourself from driving through a fast food drive-in on your way home from work when you're especially hungry that day, and you think, I'll just pull right in and get a little box of fries on my way home. All right, how much harder would it be to resist that if you were fasting? 40 days of fasting. Okay, how about this? Now imagine if after 40 days of fasting... You had the power to turn stones into tacos. I mean, on a moment's notice, bam, there's a taco on your table. You, do you think you'd resist that? I mean, come on, that's not easy. I can barely resist tacos when, they're, when I have to go buy them, much less if I could make them. So Satan knew that food would be the greatest temptation for Jesus at this point, but he's also wise enough to know that even our weaknesses, when they're not so obvious, can be exploited. I mean, nobody is a brain surgeon to figure out that Jesus would have been tempted by food. But you know what? He knows the weaknesses you're hiding from everyone. He knows them as well as, as if you were living with him. Because guess what? He sees you when no one else does. He or his demons have access into your house. They do. They can move where any spirit can move. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what your weakest point is. And don't think he won't use it. In this case, he's trying to stop Jesus' fast because he knows this fast is not a voluntary act on Jesus' part. That is to say, Jesus was commanded by the Father to fast for these 40 days as part of this trial. In fact, the number 40 in Scripture is the number for trial. This is a trial for Jesus, a test. So Jesus cannot eat without sinning. Obviously, the Father's going to let him eat sooner or later when the trial's over, but he can't cut the trial short or he's sinning. And I would submit to you that Jesus may have been allowed to turn rocks into bread without sinning. That itself might not have been a sin because he wasn't necessarily prohibited from doing that. The problem would have been what happens after he's made the rock into bread. Now he's sitting there with bread in front of him. In other words, I think Jesus may have known that even if he could have done what the enemy was asking him to do, it would have been unwise because he would have been tempting himself at that point with bread. Whichever way is true. Whether it would have been right or wrong, the point is Jesus doesn't do it. Before we look at his response, look at how Satan has disguised this temptation as a test. It's brilliant. Not to credit him, but it's brilliant. He disguises it as a test to prove the truth of God's Word. Now, defending the truth of God's Word, that sounds like a noble cause, doesn't it? What's wrong with defending God's Word? Show me that God's Word is true. Okay, I'll do it. That's what he's put in front of Jesus. This just shows you the supreme craftiness of Satan. Because what Satan is suggesting, now hear this, what he's suggesting is that Jesus can defend the Word of God by disobeying the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? That's a sum effect. If he had turned rocks into bread, been tempted to eat them, he would have proven that he was the Son of God, and simultaneously he would have disqualified himself as the Son of God. Now, have you ever heard someone justify their desire to divorce and remarry by saying, God wants me to be happy? Have you ever heard that? Or someone who justifies their decision to spend long hours at work and away from their family by saying, well, God expects me to be a good provider? Or maybe a Christian justifying a romantic relationship with an unbeliever saying, God wants me to bring them to faith? Those are examples of how Satan can twist God's word in our minds so that in the end, we do something we think is good, but in reality, all we're doing is following after our temptations and sinning as a result, disobeying the word of God in the end. We're all susceptible to this, friends. I'm not saying that those three examples are the sum total of it. There's not a person in this room who's exempt from this, right? As John says, the one who says they have no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. What I'm saying is we fall into these lies, we come into these moments of disobedience oblivious. Oblivious for lack of appreciation for how Satan is working in our life to convince us to do the very things that we know not to do. So now that you have an understanding of his tactics, let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 4, "...mustering all his strength, fighting a mind dulled by lack of fuel he recalls the perfect scriptural rebuttal from Deuteronomy 8.3. Let me read the full verse. 8.3, he says, He humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, the second half of that you recognize, because that's the part Jesus quoted. Did you catch the first part? It says, he humbled you and let you be hungry and then fed you with manna, which you did not know. Now remember, Satan asked Jesus to turn stones into bread. And in doing so, he was recalling the miracle that God did of bringing manna, right? Because essentially making bread out of nothing in the desert, that's one of God's calling cards. It comes up later in the Gospels. You know, In John 6, when Jesus does the same thing again, people are like, this is similar to what Moses did. Could you keep doing this for us? You know, it was, it was an obvious indication of deity. But look at what Jesus' response does. He draws on exactly the same lesson that Satan was trying to misuse, that is, of the provision of manna. But he uses the very truth to refute and expose the flaw in Satan's argument. Here's what he does. In Deuteronomy 8 3, the Lord said, Before he gave Israel the manna, he says, I allowed my people to go hungry for a time in the desert. Isn't that interesting? Did you ever know that? All the grumbling that Israel was doing about not having enough food. It was a legitimate gripe. They didn't have enough food. The problem was, it revealed a heart that didn't believe God could provide food. That's where the lack of faith came in. God says in his word in Deuteronomy 8.3 that he delayed that provision of manna intentionally for a time so that their stomachs would begin to growl as a means of a test of their faithfulness. He said he did it to teach his people an important lesson. He was teaching Israel that their chief concern should not have been the sustainment of their physical lives because they should have known God could make bread out of thin air if he wanted. They were in no danger. This is the same people that saw the ten plagues, right? They know he can do anything. And at some point, God did bring it. So the lesson he gave them was, heed my word obey me show me your faithfulness and the good things will follow it's similar to what jesus will say later in matthew 6:33 when he says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you speaking of food and clothing now on the other hand israel could just have continued in their ungrateful disobedient unbelieving hearts and well then destruction would follow while Israel was seeking for food for their bodies, they were ignoring the need to nourish their souls with the Word of God. And by the way, God was not asking Israel to choose between them. He wasn't asking them to say food or the Word of God. He was just saying, put them in the right priority. That is to say, seek to please God above seeking to please yourself in matters of physical needs, like food. Because when you seek to fulfill your physical needs above your spiritual needs, that's sin. That's sin. That's sin. Which is why Jesus quotes this verse to refute Satan. Deuteronomy 8.3 teaches that obedience to the word is even more important to God than supplying our physical needs. And since God has told Jesus to fast, he cannot break his fast, even for the sake of satisfying his body's need for food. But the second thing this passage does, and this is why it's such a brilliant choice on Jesus' part, the second thing this passage does is it affirms Jesus as the Son of God, which was the whole question Satan raised in the first place. Notice this. In Exodus, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Do you remember that? Let my son go, or I will kill your son, he tells Pharaoh. What you're seeing is God's son, Israel, being made to experience a fast for a time in the wilderness as a test of their hearts. So in other words, this verse could be understood to be an indirect reference to the Messiah himself. That is, that God's Son will be made to fast in the wilderness for a time as a test of his heart, which is exactly what is happening now with Jesus. He's essentially quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 to say, this is the test God has for me, that I would go hungry for a while before he gives me the bread I need. And obedience to the word is more important to him than me satisfying my physical needs. Now keep in mind, Jesus brought this scripture to mind. In this moment, using the same mental faculties that God has given each of us. Jesus did not have his iPad nearby. You know, he didn't just go to the search box and say, Scripture on food, Scripture on bread, ooh, here's a good one, and then pull it out and give it to Satan. Jesus would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. He had known it well enough that he could recall it even at the end of a 40-day fast. On the other hand, it is true he's uniquely prepared by the Father. Gospels tell us that Jesus was profoundly blessed with spiritual wisdom and that he had great insight even as a young man. So clearly... We are not Jesus' equal, and that's not my point. But what I am saying is, Jesus had to learn these things as he grew up. These things were not downloaded into his head like software. He wasn't born knowing all this stuff. He was a human being. He had to put in the time. He had to make the required effort to absorb these truths made possible by the Spirit of God as it is for us. For example, Luke ends his account of Jesus' upbringing by saying this in Luke 2.52. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, speaking of how he grew up as a young man. You notice he says increasing. That's a growth process. That means he started somewhere and he ended somewhere. Where he ended was with the ability to recall Deuteronomy eight three like that. You know, you need to see his brilliant response not as some superhuman magic trick that only God can do, because if you do that, you divorce yourself from the text. It's a fairy tale after that, right? It's like hearing about Zeus, you know, some great, powerful creature that we have no relationship to. You don't need to see the text that way because that's not the right way to see it. You need to appreciate what a godly, dedicated, faithful man can accomplish when he is thoroughly nourished on the Word of God. Now, you're never going to be Jesus, but you can be like him in quite a few ways, actually. Satan preyed upon the weaknesses of his flesh. He tried to lead Jesus against the will of the Father. And what did Jesus do? He allowed his physical body to continue suffering, not willing to satisfy it. And instead, he made his priority, pleasing God by obedience to the Word. Now, that's not something beyond your reach. It's not. We need to understand this account as it was intended to be understood. It is an account of a man resisting the enemy by maintaining self-control while making obedience to the Father his highest priority. I challenge you whether that's ever really been your consistent mindset. I deny my flesh. It gets nothing it wants unless it's consistent with obedience to the Father. We're all somewhere between that and hedonism. right? We're somewhere on that spectrum. Somewhere in our spectrum, the flesh gets what it wants. Later in the Gospels, you're going to hear Jesus teaching these words. In Matthew 6.25, he says... For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? And you know where he goes after that? He talks about the birds of the air. He talks about the grass of the field. And he says, if God is caring for these least of his creation, sufficient that they can flourish on the earth, do you really think he's going to forget that you need things to eat or wear? You think that's a, a real jeopardy for the child of God? Jesus says, no, it's not. He says, the problem is we get distracted seeking for the things you were going to get anyway at the expense of seeking the things he said were our mission to seek. That is his righteousness. That is his kingdom. When we study that passage in Matthew 6 in a few weeks, I want you to remember that as Jesus spoke those words, he had just shortly before that experienced these temptations. And don't think then he couldn't identify with his own teaching. He knew exactly what it was like to be in desperate need of food and yet to withhold the desire to take it upon yourself, to feed yourself. Now, he knew God the Father would serve him with food at some point. He wasn't going to be left with nothing, but he had to wait. He lived according to the same word he preached. He sought the same kingdom that he would one day rule. He sought for the same righteousness that he is now for us on the cross, our righteousness. Last week when I ended, I mentioned that Jesus' death on the cross was that moment of provision, that payment for our sins. And as you put your trust in that payment, as you accept that payment on on your behalf as God has made it available, put your faith in Jesus Christ. I told you, he'll forgive you of your sins. That's why he did what he did on the cross. By that forgiveness, you're welcomed into God's presence when you die. Only your faith in Christ is required, nothing more. But then I also said, maybe provocatively, that in a sense, Christ's death on the cross was the easier part for him. And as horrible as his death was, and it was unbearable, I still maintain it was the easier task than living 30 years without committing a single sin. And he did it with temptations. He succeeded where Adam could not succeed. Because if Jesus' death on that cross is to mean anything, if it's going to be worth anything, it had to be a spotless, sinless sacrifice. He had to resist temptation. And not just this one day when he's facing Satan, but every single day. And don't you think the temptation to avoid the cross got stronger? You know, the Garden of Gethsemane moment with the blood coming out. Don't you think there's a moment in there somewhere where he's thinking there's got to be another alternative? He asked the Father, is there some other way? You know, that's what makes Christianity unique, by the way, among all the religions that are out there. No one else has a solution for the problem of sin. Think about that. No one else is giving you a solution to the problem of sin. No one else has a a way of removing that barrier which stands between you and reaching the Father in heaven. Unless God does something to erase your sin, friends, you have no hope to be counted worthy to heaven because the standard to get into heaven is sinlessness. Not less sin than your neighbor, it's sinlessness. Muhammad, he has no solution for that problem. Buddha, no solution. Confucius, nothing. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientologists, none of them. They don't have a solution for your sin. They just say, try, do better. Maybe give a little money, do a little good works. The problem is you still got sin. What do you do with that problem? Jesus says, I'll take it. Jesus says, I will do what you can't. I'll live the perfect life that qualifies for heaven, and I'll pay your price for the sin that you have. I'll give you my life. You give me your sin. Sometimes called the great exchange. In Matthew 10.32, Jesus says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So tonight, as you've heard about the first temptation, we'll do the other two next week, but as you've heard about the first and you consider what Christ had to do to be sinless, if that's touched your heart, maybe for the first time in, in your life you've heard something you haven't heard before. You've heard not just who Jesus was, but why he mattered and why it is your faith in him is so important. If that's where you are tonight, well, I would not like to see you leave this room without the chance for you and me to talk a little about what you've learned and perhaps to show you what's left, what confessing Christ means. Please come up here after we're done. I'll be waiting for you. I'd love to talk to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ, for his death on the cross, paying the price for our sins. For the life he led leading into that moment in which he took the, he took the attacks of the enemy and withstood it. Sinlessly, Father, going to the cross for our sake. We'll never know what that's like. None of us will ever live a sinless life in this body, Father. None of us will have the experience of saying no to temptation every single time. But because you live in us now, Father, we do have the opportunity to sin less. And we ask, Father, that you would give us that heart, the courage, the stamina and determination that we would sin less, not to earn anything, for there is nothing to be earned, but to please you, Father, to resist the enemy so that in all that we say and do, we're giving you the glory. We're not giving him the glory anymore. If Jesus can do it, Father, we know that it is within our reach to resist, And as we resist him, we're told he will flee. Help us resist, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.